We need to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 5 to 9 this morning as we talk about honoring Christ in our work. You know, I was thinking about this when I got up here and I said, turn in your Bibles. You know, that's a phrase we've used for a long time, but now uh, with some of you looking on phones, it's probably, you know, you got to find it on your phone and get to the right app and open it up and take a look and follow along with us. All right, how do we honor Christ in our work? Let me read for you as we begin verses 5 to 9. Paul writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage today and we hear those terms, slaves and masters, it speaks of a different era. And we may wonder, how does this apply to us? And I pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom and insight. Give me the right words to say as I walk us through this passage so that we might understand how it does apply to our work and how we can honor you in all that we do. We ask it in your name. Amen. How do we honor Christ in our work? Well, for many Christians, there is a disconnect between our faith on Sunday and our work on Monday. And some people have a hard time building that bridge. Or how does what we do on Sunday carry over into the work week? Because it should. Some people make an artificial kind of sacred, secular divide that, you know, church is church and work is work, and I kind of compartmentalize those things and they're separate. And that's not the way it should be. The world may want us to do that. I mean, I think there's uh, many people in our world who would like to see our faith be simply a private thing that has no bearing on what we do as teachers or doctors or businessmen or women in our different occupations. But if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's not what the Bible teaches. As a follower of Jesus, our faith is to affect every area of our life, our worship and our work. It affects the way we look at the world, the way we look at government, the way we look at media, education, the environment, all the things around us, and especially our family, our homes, and our work. We bring Jesus Christ into the workplace. And when we do that, it changes the way that we look at our occupations. We see in the Bible that work is more than just earning a living or putting food on the table. It is a calling from God. And each of us are uniquely gifted to serve in different occupations, different areas of this world. We've been given unique gifts and abilities that are to be used for his glory. That's why Paul will write in Colossians 3.17 that whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If we were to go back in the scripture and we were to kind of take a big picture look at this, uh, we would see that in Genesis 1 and 2, before sin entered into the world, 
In that Garden of Eden, that perfect environment, the Lord God created man to work. That was part of being made in the image of God. He placed Adam in that garden to care for it and to work in that land. He was to have responsibility over it. He was to be a steward of all that he had been given, and it was to be a joy. There's something about work that allows us to join with God in what he is doing in our world. But then sin entered into the world. In Genesis 3, we read how sin affected even our labor, how it would be a toil at times how there would be thorns and thistles, how there would be those frustrations that can go with work, and how by the sweat of our brow we would earn our living. But when you come to the end of the Bible and you think about what Jesus taught in his parables and you look at the end of Revelation, you realize that one day in the future we will live in a new earth. We will have physical bodies. We're going to live on a new created earth in which God will make all things new. There'll be no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow. All those things are passing away. But in that perfect environment that God is creating, once again, we will have work, and our work will be a joy. You know, that's an interesting thing to think about because in this life, we experience glimpses of that, but it's never perfect. We experience glimpses in our work at times when we maybe accomplish a project or we see something done and there's just great joy and reward and satisfaction in it. Those are glimpses of what the world can be and should be. One day it will be. But in this world, we struggle with that kind of in-between state of joy and frustration in our work, of times there are things that we absolutely love and other times things that are just difficult for us. So how do we live in that world? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit. But what we'll see here in the Scripture is when we do our work well for the Lord, it is an act of worship. It is something we can give back to Him. Okay, so you go, Rick, okay, I'm tracking with you so far. But how does this passage that talks about slaves and masters apply to me? I mean, clearly this is a different environment that Paul is in, and a little background information is helpful here. Some have criticized Paul and criticized the New Testament for not condemning slavery directly. But slavery in the first century was not like American slavery that we think of. I mean, it is true that there were times in the Roman and uh, Greek world that slavery could be cruel and unjust. There were times when nations were conquered, forced into slavery, worked in the mines, or things like that that were very unjust. But for many people, this kind of slave relationship in a domestic setting, which is kind of the way life was, I mean, nearly every household in the Roman Empire was affected by a master-slave relationship. It's estimated there were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That would be somewhere between a third to a half of the total population. But in that New Testament era, slavery was more like indentured servanthood. It was a time period that you were working either to pay off a debt or to learn some skills or to earn your freedom from things that had happened in your life. It's not the same as it was when we think of slaves in the New World that was race-based, 
that was based on kidnapping and taking people and forcing them into labor, and it was for life. When we look at the Roman world, historian Murray Harris has written a book about what slavery was like there, and he said, um, number one, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race or speech or clothing. They looked and lived like everyone else and were never segregated off from the rest of society in any way. Number two, slaves were sometimes even more educated than their owners. A slave might be a teacher, might be a doctor, might be uh, someone who had skills, who worked as a steward in the household. Many times they held high managerial positions. Number three, from a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not themselves usually poor and often accrued enough personal capital to buy themselves out of slavery. So much that very few persons were slaves for life. Most expected to be free by the time they were 30 years old and some in their late 30s. Now that's different than what we think of and what took place in America that was race-based and that was cruel and unjust. So the point is when somebody says to you that the Bible condones slavery, you can honestly say, no, it didn't. Not the way that you and I define slavery. And it is the very principles that are taught in Scripture of equality and justice that would lead to it being overthrown. And it would be Christians that would be at the forefront of that, people like William Wilberforce and others who led that charge. So when we come to this passage that speaks about slaves and masters, it was in a domestic setting that Paul is writing about. That's why it's included here. He's talked to wives and husbands in the home situation. He's talked to children and parents, and now he's talking to slaves and masters in that kind of household situation. And you can imagine they were even sitting together in the church. Now, that's a, that's a different concept for us, isn't it? To think that here in this congregation, you have people from all these different people groups, occupations, stations in life, if you will. And Paul is saying, God is a word for you. And he would say that same word to those of you today, whether you are an employer or an employee in your situation, God is something for us to learn here. Well, let's take a look at what he says to employees first. We see that in verses 5 to 8, picking up some things from this situation. He said, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So what does an employee owe to his employer? There are five things that are mentioned here. First of all, he owes them obedience. And what I would say by that is it means do what you are hired to do to the best of your ability. You know, if you're hired to do a particular job, then do that job well. If there's a job description for you, then seek to live that out and do that as well as you can as unto the Lord. Secondly, show respect for your boss or your manager. And you show respect both in your words and in your attitude. We are to speak well of them and those who are above us, whether it's as managers or as an employer. We are to show sincerity. The word sincerity in the New Testament was an unusual word. It brought together two kind of different words. It meant without wax, without wax. 
It had to do with being honest. And what does that mean? Well, in those days, a dishonest dealer in pottery would sometimes repair a flaw in a vase or a work that was done with wax. He'd fill in the cracks. It wouldn't be noticeable at first, but over time that wax would melt or fall out and then you would notice the flaws that were there or the cracks in a vase. So to be sincere was to live your life honest or true. But this word also includes the idea of generosity. And I think of that in the workplace. It means do even more than you are asked when you have the opportunity. It's not just saying, okay, well, I'm going to do this much and no more. But as you have opportunity to serve, you look for ways that you can go above and beyond as a testimony to Christ. We're to show loyalty. We are to work hard, not just when the boss is looking, but even when they are not. And we're to serve wholeheartedly to be the best employee we could be in word and in deed. Now, you look at that list, and let me ask you this. Would you hire someone with those characteristics? Well, I think most employers would say, yeah, I'd be looking for people that will bring that kind of work and ethic to their job. There is value in all of those things. Well, it was interesting that a team of researchers from the University of Michigan and Yale studied people in their work, and in particular, they focused on people who are sometimes in what we would consider maybe to be less glamorous jobs. And they focused on how they went about their work. And uh, so for this particular study, they chose to look at hospital janitors. But what they learned from their studies took them completely by surprise. When the researchers interviewed the cleaning staff of major hospitals in the Midwest, they discovered that there was a certain subset of housekeepers who didn't see themselves as part of the janitorial staff at all. They saw themselves as part of the professional staff as part of the healing team. And that changed the way that they went about their work. I mean, these people would get to know patients and their families if they could offer support in some way, if they needed an extra chair in the room, they needed a box of Kleenex, or whatever it was that they needed, if they could help, they went over and above what was asked of them as part of the custodial staff to help the people there as much as they could. One housekeeper even reported rearranging the pictures on the walls of the patient's room with the hope that the change of scenery might have some positive effect. And the researchers coined a term for what these special housekeepers brought to their job. They called it job crafting. Job crafting means that people take their existing jobs or their job descriptions and they expand them because of their desire to make a difference. Job crafters are those who do what's expected because that's what they were hired to do, and then they find a way to add something new to their work, something that delights, something that benefits both the giver and the receiver. And one of the lead researchers put it this way, people who job craft don't just reshape their jobs to make life better for themselves, but to serve others in some beneficial way. Now, my guess is, you probably run into people like that, or maybe you are one of those persons that's tried to do that in your work. 
The person who goes out of their way with a smile or a kind word or offers to give a helping hand on something that's, again, not in the job description, but something you do just because of what God's done in your heart. Our perspective makes a difference. I think of the old story that goes back to the days when the great cathedrals were being built in Europe. There's a story of a visitor who saw these stonemasons engaged in their work, and he went up to the first and he asked him what he was doing, and he said, I'm cutting stone. And he went to the second one and he said, well, I'm making a living. But when he went to the third stonemason and asked him the question, he said, me? He said, I'm building a great cathedral for God and his people. It makes a difference how we see our work and do we see it as contributing to the mission, to the overall goals of your business or church or where you are at work today. Do you see your work as a calling from God? That God has you there for a reason. And even if it's an entry-level job, you are learning skills that are going to carry over into future work. You're building relationships. You're learning things about yourself that will help to prepare you in the future. And so do it well. Do it with a smile on your face. Do it as unto the Lord. And do you see your work as a place where you can be a witness for Christ? Again, by your life and by your words. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, having a Bible study at work during work hours. No, it's not saying that. It's saying that you are the kind of person, though, who's looking for opportunities to pray, to encourage, to share, to build a relationship. And sometimes, again, it's what you say, and sometimes it's just the way you go about your work. That's what the early church did. These people who turned the world upside down. In the second century, Justin Martyr wrote, he said, Our Lord urged us by patience and meekness to lead those around us from shame and the lusts of the flesh. And there are many who have come in contact with us, who were overcome and who were changed from their old way of life, either by having watched the constancy of their Christian neighbors or from doing business with Christians. All he's saying is that it was living out our faith in the workplace, in the market, that made the difference and that was attractive to those around us who then came to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. How would you work if Jesus Christ were your boss? Would it change the way that you did your work this week? Because that's what the Scripture is saying. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord not men. Well, let's look at the other side of the coin, the duty of employers. And we see that in verse 9 where he says, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Treat your servants in the same way is what Paul was saying in that context. And we would say treat your employees in the same way. It's short, to the point. He doesn't repeat all the stuff here. You've just heard what he is saying. But it was a radical statement because there were those in the Greco-Roman world who looked at slaves as just property. Aristotle said a slave is a tool 
It's a living tool, but it's a tool. It's no different than a hammer or a sledge or something like that. You want to care for it as you would care for your tools, but it's just property. And there were those who had that very kind of cold, detached view of those who were slaves. And here Paul comes and he's saying, not so with you. If you are in the family of God and you have people here that are sitting together as masters and slaves in household relationships, just like today we have people that are in working relationships as employers and employees, he's saying, I want you to treat your employees in the same way that you want to be treated. Treat them with respect because they are made in the image of God. Treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ because they are, and you have the same Father in heaven. You know, when I think back in American history, and I've done a lot of reading in this area too, it's just really shameful to me of how long we have struggled with this issue of race in our country. I mean, the Civil War fought and ended 1865, liberated the slaves, Emancipation Proclamation. Then Lincoln is assassinated, and Andrew Johnson, the vice president, comes in who directly opposed everything that Lincoln stood for. He was from the South, and he did everything he could to obstruct any kind of reconstruction and keep blacks in their place in America. And you think of for a hundred years how things perpetuated, and we come into the 1960s, and we have the civil rights movement in this country of wanting to have and enjoy their freedom. And one of the most moving pictures for me of those protests that went on in that day was of a a number of black men all wearing a sign, a placard that said simply, I am a man. I am a man. I mean, they just wanted to be recognized as a human being and treated with dignity and respect, the most basic of rights. And that's what Paul is saying here in terms of our relationships with one another in the workplace, in the marketplace, to treat one another with respect, with dignity, because we are made in God's image. I want you to treat your employees with sincerity. I want you to be honest and generous with them. I want you to treat them with loyalty. I want you to make your workplace a great place to work. Make it the best that it can be. Make it the kind of business where people enjoy coming to work, where they feel like they are productive, they are valued, they are appreciated where there's a sense of teamwork, we're all contributing toward the same mission and vision, and this is what we do. Be wholehearted. Be concerned for them, for their needs, for their family and their situation. And take the time even to get to know them as much as you can to hear their story. Treat your employees as you would want to be treated. That's the golden rule, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But it even goes a step above that in what Paul is saying here when he says, treat your employees as you would treat Jesus Christ. I think of the words of Jesus who said in Matthew 25, 40, that whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Whatever we do for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we do for Jesus himself. And especially when we show our concern and our compassion for the least of these in our world. 
Remember that you have the same master in heaven. The motivation for both the Christian employee and the Christian employer is the final judgment, that we will stand before God one day to give an account for how we treated one another, for the things that we did, and there's no favoritism with him. God is not concerned about whether you were the boss or whether you were a worker at your business or whatever you did. What he is concerned about is how you went about your work, and did you do it in a way that honored me? So what would this look like in the real world? If we were to look for some examples of businesses or companies that are doing this kind of thing, what would that look like? And I want to say that there are no perfect examples out there because we live in a fallen world. Uh, And no matter uh, how we try to work at these things, there are going to still be struggles or things where we could improve. But there are some good examples out there. And I love what Steve Garber, who has written in this area, he wrote a book called Visions of Vocation. He used a term in there that he called proximate justice. In other words, can we be happy with progress, even though it's not exactly all that we would want it to be? Can we be happy if our business is moving in that direction? Can we be happy if we as employees are moving in that direction? He talked about it, for example, for a young Christian couple that were working in Washington, D.C., where he is. And, you know, they got involved in the legislative process. And the legislative process is messy. And it's, it's been described, it's a little bit like making sausage, that you really don't want to know all that goes into it. You know, you just, it happens and it gets done. And so sometimes bills are passed or laws are passed that are not perfect, but they do help to make the world a little bit better. That's proximate justice. And can you be happy with that even in your workplace to simply make this world a better place even though it's not perfect? Well, I think of a friend of mine, Howard Dahl, who along with his brother Brian started a business in manufacturing in Fargo, North Dakota in 1977. They came from a family that had been involved with implement manufacturing. If you remember, some of you might know the name Steiger, Steiger Tractors. That was a family business. Well, he started in 1977 a company called Concord. They were going to make air seeders, low-till implements, something that could be used on the plains in our sandier soils where there's less, uh, with low-till, there's less erosion. And in particular, he wanted to make Equipment that could be sold in Eastern Europe at that time as a way to provide employment for Christians in his company to work and build relationships and have a reason to live and be there. He had a vision for ministry, a vision to bring the gospel into those former Soviet Union nations. Well, the company struggled. It was difficult at first. There were years when they were just on the edge struggling to make a profit. But the way he chose to operate his business on Christian principles was like, we're going to share in this. If there are cuts that need to be made in wages or income, we're all going to feel it. If there are hours that need to be cut, we're going to cut hours across the board. We're not going to lay people off if we do not have to. And if there are employees struggling with things in their work, like if an employee was struggling with alcoholism, They'd provide for counseling, recovery, and they'd help the family through that time. And they looked to hire managers who were committed to the same kind of values of compassion 
and integrity. The company grew, and it did prosper. And in 1996, he sold it to Case Manufacturing or Case Implement. And then he started a new business once again. He kept the sugar beet equipment line and some of the low-till equipment, and he began to build on that. And his business grew once again until in 2013 he was named North Dakota's Exporter of the Year. I mean, I think he was doing business at a volume of $125 million, most of that equipment going to Russia, the former Soviet Union, as well as being sold in the States. Now, I share that as an example that biblical principles can and do work in the marketplace. If you choose to run your business in a way that honors God, it doesn't mean you're going to suffer in terms of making a profit or succeeding in the workplace. In fact, God's going to open doors for you, and you're going to have people that will enjoy working in your company. You're going to have opportunities to minister here, and who knows what other doors God may open. But can you imagine what it would be like if every Christian employer had that perspective? If those who knew the Lord said, you know what, we're going to do this, God, you know, maybe I've not seen models of this. I need to learn from others who have run their business this way, but I'm going to do that, and I want to honor you and put you first in my work. Tim McGuire, a former editor of the Minneapolis Star Tribune and a former president of the American Society of Newspaper Editors, was speaking at a seminar entitled Faith, Religion, and Values. And he said this, he said, for many people, work is brutal. Work is a four-letter word to them. Most people don't think that work could possibly have anything to do with spirituality. They assume that these two worlds cannot mesh. But if we bring our souls to work, then we can transform our work. Or I would say, if we bring Christ to our work, then Christ will transform our work. That's when our work can begin to transform us. That's when our work actually becomes part of how God disciples us and teaches us things about what it means to be faithful in a fallen world, what it means to be honest and just even when it costs, what it means to be the kind of person that he has created us to be using our gifts to honor him and to minister to people around us. When we don't have that attitude, when people look at their work as just a job, just something that they got to do and they're waiting for the weekend or they're waiting to check out, that work transforms them into something bad, something bitter, something tired, something broken. Don't let that happen to you. How can we honor Christ in our work? We can do it by following these five things that are shared here. By seeing our work as a vocation, a calling from God, and recognizing that this is my assignment. This is where God has me today. It may not be where he's going to have you long term. Maybe this is just where you're starting out or you're looking and aspiring to other things that you would like to do. Then view it as preparation and do it as well in a way that honors Christ. We can honor him by understanding that the work we do contributes to making our community and our world a better place to live. I mean, if all of us have that perspective and we see how our work provides common grace for the common good, then if you're a teacher, love your students, pray for them, and teach them. 
in a way that honors Christ. If you're a businessman, then treat your employees and your customers in a way that gives honor to Christ. If you're working in manufacturing, then make those products that you are making. Do that well with excellence in a way that honors Christ. If you're a waiter or a waitress, serve your customers in a way that shows them respect and care also. We can honor Christ by treating our boss and our employees the way we would want to be treated. We can honor Christ by being workers who are fair, who are honest, who are loyal, who are hardworking. And most of all, we honor Christ by doing everything for Jesus because he is Lord of all. And that's why Paul says here, remember it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And even though written to a different setting in which in their day there were slaves and masters, we can hear how this applies to us today. And I pray for us as we go to work tomorrow that we would begin with prayer, that we'd say, Lord, here I am. Would you use me today? Would you help me to see the people around me through your eyes? Would you help me to do my work in a way that honors you? to do it well, to do it with all your heart. And Father, I pray that that would make a difference in our workplace, that we would be a savoring influence by our words, by our attitude, by our actions, that others would see that, hey, there's something different that you bring to the workplace, and that difference is Jesus Christ. And over time, that you would open doors to give us opportunities to share a word, to pray with someone, to share the gospel even, or to invite them to church. Lord Jesus, we want to honor you in our work, and I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.